Hey there, it's Emma. Have you missed us? Well, What Could Go Right is still on a break, but we'll be turning with brand new episodes for season five this fall. In the meantime, we wanted to share a recent episode of a podcast we think that you'll really like called Ones and Twos, which is a weekly economics and political history podcast from our friends at Foreign Policy. In this episode, hosts Adam Tews and Cameron Abadi dive into the emergence of green hydrogen and its potential for being a major boon to countries in Africa as well as in India. They also discuss how this green energy source could help reduce emissions in several industrial processes. So definitely the kind of positive development that we think What Could Go Right listeners would like to hear more about. So without further ado, here's Ones and Twos. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we use data points to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So in the second half of the podcast, we're going to be talking about traveling Europe on a budget. But first, as always, we like to do something drawn from the news in this case, uh, the data point is $676 million. That was the size of the global market for green hydrogen in 2022. That market is projected to reach $7 billion by 2027. The National Planning Commission of Namibia is geared towards deepening the green hydrogen and synthetic. India is set to spend $2 billion to develop green hydrogen. The country wants Now, to the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, and Germany have struck a $24 billion deal in Mauritania, where they'll build a hydrogen facility near the capital. So, green hydrogen is one of the new sources of energy that's supposed to pave the way towards a new carbon neutral economy. But even though there's clearly plenty of money flowing towards hydrogen, we tend to hear less about it in public discourse than wind and solar energy. So we thought we'd try to correct for that and get into some of the details about what exactly hydrogen is and how it works. So, yeah, Adam, let's just start with the basics. What is green hydrogen and what can it be used for? And I guess in which sectors of the economy uh, would it be useful? So hydrogen is H, the simplest element in the periodic table, and what makes it green rather than blue or gray is how we produce it and to get usable hydrogen we, we do have to produce it because the naturally occurring forms are not not that useful for our productive purposes um, but the reactiveness of, of hydrogen makes it very important as a chemical feedstock so the demand this is the i think the essential point that i learned in you know working on this segment and that i would like listeners to take away from this whole thing is that hydrogen is already a crucial part of the industrial production system in whatever form we make it so about 87 million metric tons of hydrogen were already produced and used in the global economy in 2020 and that number's continuously going up. It depends a little bit how you value it, depends a little bit on how you count hydrogen because it comes either as H2 or in various combinations with other gases. But the market is already valued at between 130 and 160 to 170 billion dollars today already. So the problem we have, um, rather than the future challenge ahead, is that those 90 million tons odd of hydrogen that we currently use are 
what is politely called grey. And that means that it is produced by treating methane, so natural gas, or coal, about 47% of the global hydrogen production currently comes from treating natural gas, 27% from coal, another 22% from oil. And in the process of doing that, we use a lot of energy and the byproducts involve CO2. So it's a hugely energy intensive process. About 6% of all global natural gas used is used to make hydrogen currently, about 2% of global coal. The emissions involved are in the order of a large European country or in Indonesia, something like that. So this is the current hydrogen problem. It's a huge headache. And the good news, and this is where I finally get to answering your green hydrogen question, the good news is that we know how to produce hydrogen by a different mechanism. I mean, it's really quite an elementary um, chemical process. People may have even done it in you know, middle school or high school chemistry. If you use electrolysis, you can split H2O, water, into two components, oxygen and H2, right? So then you can take the H2, which is highly unstable, and make ammonia out of it, and then you can feed that into the industrial process. And right now, 4% of the world's hydrogen, this huge mass that we already use, or this huge volume that we currently already use, these, you know, give or take 90 million metric tons of it, 4% of that is currently already produced by electrolysis. So this is a tested technology at considerable scale, but only if you allow for the fact that the vast majority of electricity is not produced from renewable sources, only about 1% of our current hydrogen production is green in the strict sense that it's hydrogen produced by electrolysis and by the use of green electricity. And the challenge really is, can we expand that? That's, that is the first thing to get in mind. And, and listeners may be a bit puzzled because I'm not talking about the context in which hydrogen is normally discussed, which are the new applications of hydrogen. But this is deliberate because one of the reasons we know the hydrogen thing is for real is that we already use huge amounts of it. Right? So we've got to green that bit before we do anything else. But the promise of hydrogen is that there are other things we can do with it. So when it reacts with oxygen, when it burns, the beauty of it is it produces on the one hand very high heat, explosion indeed, and on the other hand, the, the byproduct is har as harmless as water. So if we can take the hydrogen and burn it in control ways, we get high heat applications. And why those really matter is that when we think about decarbonizing the production system, it's easy enough to see how we get moderate temperatures. You can get those literally just by putting mirrors out in the sun, right, on a hot day. We can do various types of, of space heating and space heat cooling using heat pumps. But when it comes to super high energy industrial applications like steel making, it's really hard to see how you do those without burning something. And the thing that you would burn will be hydrogen. And so for the so-called hard to abate sectors of industry, steel, and some parts of the chemical industry, the idea is that green hydrogen will play a key role in maintaining steel and heavy chemicals production going forward. Another key application is in energy storage. We'll say more about this in a second, but because you could make hydrogen out of uh, water with the application of energy and then generate energy by reoxidizing the, the hydrogen, if you like, the 
hydrogen potentially is somewhere where we can store energy to deal with the intermittency problem with solar and wind. So basically, you could put a hydrogen electrolyzer plant next to a wind platform or next to a, a solar installation and generate hydrogen, store energy that way, and then release it essentially as a form of natural gas back into the power generation system when you need it at night times or if wind was low. And then finally, and I've kind of put them deliberately last, because in some senses, technologically speaking, I think the questions are most open and the necessity of using hydrogen is least clear, it's transport. So for, you know, currently there are tens of thousands of motor vehicles being operated with hydrogen fuel cells. But we already know that for motor vehicles, batteries may be a much more viable technology. For airplanes, huge questions about safety and volume. And for long distance freight shipping, there's another application there. But in order of priority, the th key thing to realize is that where green, and green hydrogen is immediately and essentially mat going to matter and must matter is in the conversion of existing industrial processes which use hydrogen. So I'd like to dig in more into the obstacles to green hydrogen's more widespread use or, I guess, more widespread production, as it were. What, what, what are the obstacles exactly? Well, there's the danger aspect. It explodes. And it's not at all dense, so you need huge volumes of safe space, unless you're going to somehow convert the hydrogen into something else, like ammonia, which, and every time you do that, it's expensive. And that's really the key element here, is that to make hydrogen through electrolysis, uh, you need humongous amounts of electricity, which is why all the other techniques for making hydrogen are preferred currently. I mean, ultimately, if we think about you know, the current demand of 90 million tonnes of, of hydrogen and say we multiply that up on one of the more modest scenarios to two or 300 million tonnes of hydrogen that will be used across the variety of different applications we started by talking about. You're talking terawatts, or indeed tens of terawatts of power. So like huge amounts of electricity to get there. Why? Because the process of making the hydrogen and then on processing it from there is hugely inefficient, right? So basically you're taking energy, you're changing the chemical composition, and then you're going to flip the chemical composition back and get energy out of the process. And the net effect of that is that you lose 30 to 35% of the energy used to produce hydrogen is lost in the electrolysis process, liquefying or converting hydrogen to other carriers such as ammonia, you lose another 13 to 25% of, of energy. And then if you're going to transport it, which requires additional energy inputs, you know, you're talking a further 10 to 12% of hydrogen's energy loss in the process. And then if you put this into a fuel cell, it's even more. Right now, 70% of the cost of producing green hydrogen are energy costs. Now, you can bring some of these costs down, and we are going to have to bring some of these costs down by improving the efficiency of, of the uh, electrolyzers, right? That's a key element. And there's huge innovation going on there and a huge expansion of production. And as we expand production of the electrolyzers, with the Chinese very much in the lead again, the cost of buying the units and the efficiency of the units when you have them installed will likely improve quite dramatically, as it has with photovoltaics. That's one element of the story. The other one is simply needing the cheap solar and wind power. Now, the good news is that already, given the huge learning curve gains we've had in photovoltaics and wind, cited in the right place, green hydrogen production through electrolysis is beginning to be competitive with grey hydrogen production. 
The big problem is that in certain parts of the world, obviously, there's no carbon pricing at all. So in the United States, natural gas, for instance, is super cheap. And so in the United States, a straight competition between green hydrogen and fracked gas hydrogen is always going to be really tough to organize. And the other thing is that the places which are truly ideal for renewable energy hydrogen production are places like in the global south, like um, Namibia or in India. And so then the question is, is this the place where you're going to build the hydrogen-based chemical industry to go with it or the hydrogen-fueled steel mills? Or are you then going to ship the hydrogen? Or might it be better perhaps to ship the renewable energy, not ship it, but transmit it, and then install your hydrogen production closer to the sites where you're actually going to use it? And all of those questions have to be sorted out. We are at the cusp of being in a position where ammonia produced from renewable green hydrogen is falling to levels in price at which it's competitive in a market like Europe. But the volumes of investment required are huge and the technological challenges of transporting hydrogen stabilized as ammonia, let alone transmitting the energy, are, are vast. But at least hypothetically, we can see scenarios in the next 10 years, not in the next five years, in which those kind of processes are become commercially viable. But there's a huge number of technological and commercial obstacles to overcome before we get there. So in the meantime, I mean, is all of this interest in green hydrogen, which seems like a kind of bubble to some extent, uh, given how you're describing it, does that itself create a market for the less green alternatives, for the gray and blue hydrogen that, that you've been mentioning? So gray, not so much. I mean, there's already an industry and it um, grows with the demand for industrial chemistry. But blue is interesting and, and really creates fundamental dilemmas because the idea with blue hydrogen is that you produce it from gas and coal as before from natural gas and coal. But you then, because you, as it were, control the entire process of production, you capture the CO2 produced at source. So you're not trying to suck the CO2 out of the air, but you literally just have a capture process fully integrated with the chemical production process. And the idea is that this may be a cheaper alternative, and it's an, it's an idea that is being pursued quite actively by players in the oil and gas industry um, who see this as an option. It has to be said, at a relatively small scale so far, compared to the plays which are being made in the green hydrogen space. So blue hydrogen is, at this point, I think, even less of a realistic proposition, but that's one of the ideas that is out there. The risk is that you take what, in the first instance, appears to be a shortcut. In other words, you continue with existing and familiar industrial technologies. You continue using fossil fuels, but neutralize their climate warming effects by carbon capture, but end up investing essentially in technologies which within the space of, if not five years, then 10 years will become obsolete. And then you end up with what in the climate economics jargon is called, are called stranded assets. And right now, the pipeline of green hydrogen projects, which are in the works, are likely to produce a halving of electrolyzer costs by 2030. And when you combine those kind of gains with the cheap renewable energy combination, which we expect to be the model for hydrogen production within the next five to 10 years, the commercial viability of substantial investment in blue hydrogen at this point seems frankly quite questionable. 
So if this all did happen, if green hydrogen really did become widely spread, who exactly would benefit in a global context? I mean, who would become the world's big hydrogen powers? So if you think about um, this shift that we're, we're talking about here, the interesting thing is that it shifts the meaning of territory, right? So, you know, in, a, in an old fossil fuel world, you know, if you're talking about the Gulf or Saudi Arabia or whatever, the, the entire destiny of the state is defined by the good fortune of sitting on top of some of the, you know, the most abundant and cheapest hydrocarbon reserves. What the renewable energy transition does is to reshuffle the pack by, at least on the face of it, giving preeminence to places with great conditions for renewable power generation. So there's a lot of excitement right now um, in Africa about the potential for the emergence of several African states, uh, probably Morocco, Namibia are really in the lead here as large scale renewable energy producers with associated hydrogen production. Another major player in the hydrogen space that is counting on it as a potential game changer is India. In other respects, however, hydrogen seems to confirm the existing order of things. So the Chinese are the dominant player. They took a serious position in the electrolyzers and they now completely dominate the market for cheap. Not the, they're not the most efficient, but nevertheless, by far the cheapest electrolyzer units now come from China. So guess who's Electrolyzers are getting installed in all of these early hydrogen projects. Now, those have to be scaled up, but it looks as though China has already stolen a march and everyone else in that key element of the manufacturing chain. The real surprise are the implications of the Inflation Reduction Act of last year in the United States for hydrogen production, green hydrogen production. Because America already has a large, as you'd imagine, as a huge fossil fuel producer, already has a large hydrogen industry, which is a good thing to start with. And what the IRA has done, the Inflation Reduction and DAC has done, has added a whopping grape up to $3 worth of subsidy on top of America's already low production costs because it's got good conditions for solar and wind, notably in Texas, and it already has hydrogen infrastructure installed. And the infrastructure bill, the one before the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, also included funding for so-called hydrogen hubs in Texas. And so the word on the street now, and it's really quite terrifying for everyone else who's launching their big hydrogen projects, is that America will leap ahead of, uh, in terms of the pure production cost of green hydrogen, of virtually everyone else with this subsidy element. So natural conditions may be trumped by the fiscal capacity of America. So obviously a lot of the talk about the future of this industry is still speculative, but I thought we could finish by interrogating this kind of speculation itself a little bit. I mean, is the talk about green hydrogen really just hype at this point? I mean, and if so, who benefits from all the hype around green hydrogen itself? Well, I think at one end of the spectrum, it is hypey. Um, I think when we're talking about transport applications, it's pretty hypey because certainly in the motor vehicle space, because there's so many alternative options which look cheaper and are already to hand and are already happening. It's when you get into the hard to abate space, in other words, the high heat industrial space that we're talking about hype, but it's a rather different type of hype. It's kind of hype out of necessity. In other words, it's really hard to see how we make steel without some source of ultra high heats and hydrogen is the obvious one to go, but no one has really done it yet at scale. The element of this story, which I think is absolutely for real, is the bit where we already fully rely on hydrogen in industrial processes and really can't do without it. And the only question is how we generate it. And that is a really big story. 
that piece of the decarbonization story has to happen. It absolutely has to happen. We, we currently do not have a vision of how those industrial chemical processes would work without hydrogen as feedstock. It's a chemical necessity. And we do have with electrolyzers um, the ability to produce it in a green way. And I think one has to believe that that is a story that is, as it were, baked in. And the, the serious apostles, the serious preachers for hydrogen, the people that you should listen to are the people who tell you this. Hydrogen is a, is a second move. It's a second move on a first move, which has got to be this huge ramping up of renewable energy. The second move is then green hydrogen for industrial processes. The third move is then green hydrogen for hard to abate other sectors. That is a that's a play out over the, you know, beyond the first decade of this transition. Got it. That is very useful because yeah, a lot of the references one sees are are not as serious in terms of including those kinds of calculations. Yeah, we're all going to have our kind of like Star Wars, you know, hydrogen pad, you know, skateboard or something like that. That that is not the it's the invisible stuff behind the scenes that really is going to matter here. Okay. Uh, well, there you go. Um, I, I think that was a, a very useful explainer, at least uh, for me personally, uh, hopefully for other listeners out there. Okay, we'll take a break right here, but stick around and we'll be back to talk about traveling Europe on a budget. Hi, and welcome back. Our next data point is $1,359. That is, by one estimate, uh, the average cost for a solo traveler to take a seven-day vacation in Europe right now from the U.S., I should specify. If you're looking for a European getaway this summer, you'd better do it quick. Online searches for flights to Europe are surging. The weather is changing into spring and summer mode and demand for travel heating up with it. Let's talk about how business is going because in the United States, we look at some of the airlines here and things are booming. You know, the idea of a budget vacation in Europe is a dream that many Americans have had for a long time. That's gotten complicated these days for various reasons. Um, but we thought we would dig into this question of traveling Europe on a budget, whether it's still possible, how one would go about it, how that's changed over time. So Adam, one of the big factors that has changed travel in Europe has been the growth of budget airlines, uh, EasyJet, uh, Ryanair, these are the two big ones that come to mind, but there are others. I wonder whether that business model is going to disappear as a result of climate policy in Europe. Well, I think any kind of flying is is going to get more expensive when carbon pricing really kicks in hard and begins to drive up the prices appreciably. And that that's, should be welcomed. Um, outright bans on short distance flying, you know, are so far confined to you know large European states like France. And France, of course, benefits from a high speed railway system that allows you to travel practically from city center to city center across the country in you know a matter of hours, whichever direction you want to go in. But I mean, for longer routes, if you want to go from Poland to Britain, for instance, a route that's used by millions of people because of the large Polish migration to Britain in the early 2000s, trains are not going to be an option anytime soon. And so I think that's the, the key. In the meantime, seriously, I mean, travelers in Europe benefit from knockdown ticket prices, the likes of which you just never ever see in the US. And um, 
it's always worth checking out um, and really unlikely destinations as well. You know, I mean, if you want to fly, not just to, to Warsaw, for instance, but Poznan, you can get an Edinburgh to Poznan connection. It turns out I've had to look at this route recently hmm. um, for, you know, for, well, you know, the base ticket is, is very, very cheap. That's what pulls you in. It's a, you know, 30, 40, 50 euros or something like that. But then when you add actually, you know, some luggage, it gets a little more expensive, but still, by comparison with America's overpriced domestic air travel, it's remarkably affordable um, still for people to move around. Trains, however, remain a great option. Um, and for many people, they're much less stressful and uh, much more agreeable getting around. And there's, you know, family carriages, quiet carriages, good Wi-Fi connections, a whole sort of travel scene on railways that you're never going to get on an airline. And yet, you know, as you mentioned, it does seem like in some ways Europe's continental train systems don't yet seem prepared to entirely take over for uh, the current levels of, of air travel. I mean, specifically when it comes to uh, finding routes over national boundaries, one discovers that the continent's various train systems are, are not really coordinated with one another. It's not really possible to kind of book a, a ticket from one city to a different city in, in a different country oftentimes. So you have to kind of cobble them together by kind of going to the various national railways. I mean, what exactly is the problem with such an integrated continent? What's the holdup with getting the train systems coordinated? Yeah, I mean, it's really uh, kind of shocking. And it, it's odd because, you know, once upon a time, well before there were computers, you know, in widespread use, you could buy tickets. You had to go to a travel agent or the ticket office and they would happily book you a ticket from you know, Germany to Britain, which took you through two or three countries. Um, when, and in the age of computers, it doesn't seem to have become noticeably easier to do this. I think the fundamental issues here are system differences, you know, all the way down to train design, carriage design, the need to change locomotives on certain routes, national pride that separates the different European railway systems, um, the investment that would be necessary to overcome those obstacles. But I mean, we shouldn't underestimate the innovation that's happening now. And I think one of the more promising developments is the is the revival of the sleeper car and the and the idea of night trains, which are now going to run more and more, because that's one of the great advantages potentially of railway is that you could actually sleep um, in relative comfort on on the train and do your journey during the night for one of those longer distance routes. If you're doing Warsaw to Paris or something like that, then there's no reason why you shouldn't board the train in the evening in Poland and wake up in the morning in Paris. So I think that's there's a bunch of private operators which are taking advantage of the separation between train operation and rail, which has become quite common across Europe to set up new models for, you know, a greener long distance travel future. So if you mentioned budget travel, the other institution that comes to mind are youth hostels in Europe. They're obviously a, a very successful accommodation across the continent. I think several thousand youth hostels exist where you can, for, for a relatively low amount of money, find a place to sleep, often sort of dormitory accommodations. I've actually been to the very first youth hostel in the entire world, which is in small town in Western Germany, uh, in Altena, uh, if anyone is interested. But uh, there's a small museum there. But it did get me wondering, why does this concept work in Europe, but seemingly not in the United States? There's only a couple dozen, I think, youth hostels across the entire continental United States. So is this a regulatory question of some kind or, or just really more a question of culture? It's really strange, isn't it? The more I thought about this, because to a European, one of the downright weird aspects of American youth culture is the willingness to cohabit in dorm rooms during college. 
you know, in Europe, it's basically unthinkable for two grown-up people in their early 20s to be sleeping in the same room if you're not a couple or on a, in a hostel, right? Whereas this is totally the norm in mm. American colleges. You pay, you know, these extraordinary college fees and your kid ends up, you know, sharing a bedroom with, a, with another grown-up. It's really, it's completely mind-boggling. And obviously, <laughs> Americans, when they're on the road, whether it's in Europe or in Asia, are natural hostelers. Americans, you know, Australians, mm. South Africans are, in fact, the stereotypical hostelers um, of, you know, the European um, tourist scene. I think the, probably the basic ask question you have to ask yourself is why backpacking super low budget, distinctively youth tourism is actually just not a phenomenon in America per se. Like, and the question, of course, is exactly where would you go and how would you get there? And whilst public transport, the low cost option is, you know, the standard backpackers fare, you get some sort of Eurorail summer long ticket to travel around Europe. That's just not an option in the US. Well, you know, what would you do it on Amtrak or Greyhound? It's, it's just not a, hmm. a mode of transport. Um, so it's a, to my mind, I think the, the main driver of this is simply that the image of the sort of low cost traveling summer vacationing young person just doesn't translate into American vacation culture, right? You have sort of holiday camps for young kids. And then after that, young Americans go abroad. Right? Hmm. I mean, you don't, you know, you maybe a road trip, but then you'd be in a car and you'd stay in motels. You might camp perhaps in a national park, you might have an RV, even if you were, you know, entrepreneurial, but you wouldn't the idea of hosteling as such mm. i mean there are hostels in in new york there's fatly one literally around the corner from my apartment but mm. it's i think entirely occupied by europeans and asian visitors um above all european i think from the street you know the footfall i see outside our place interesting i mean obviously the other accommodation these days that one thinks of uh when you're traveling on a budget is Airbnb, obviously there are high-end uh, rentals, but I guess some other more affordable ones too. It did get me wondering about the extent to which Airbnb, though, has distorted local housing markets in Europe. I mean, I, I should say that I have a have a deep interest in Airbnb as a very regular user. Um, and but you know, and if I put my analytical hat on, I would I'd push back on this talk about distortion. I mean, show me an undistorted urban housing mm. market, and uh, you know, <laughs> well, I'd be very pleased to see it. I mean, fundamentally, you know, the issue of how we live together in cities is too important and complicated, and there's just too much money in, at stake for there ever to be an undistorted housing market. They're just different types of and different structures of housing market. Um, I mean, the actual measurements of how large this is, how this large this effect is, are, are much less dramatic than, than you might expect. I mean, Barcelona is the classic case of this, where there was a huge surge in Airbnb activity, leading, in fact, to a de facto ban. And the econometrics that were done on that up to 2020 showed that in the high, most highly popular areas, the effect on rents was to raise them by 7% and to raise real estate prices in Barcelona by 17%. Now, if you've ever lived in a truly hot, housing market in a big city, those are trivial numbers, right? So mm. that was the impact that was found across a larger array um, of cities that were studied a 1% increase in Airbnb listings increased rentals by 0.018%. So again, there is an elasticity here, the more Airbnb activity you have, of course, that will tend to drive rents up and house prices up, but the effects are not large relative to everything else that's going on, right? And the global tourist economy is obviously a huge driver 
But if, you can, if you're worried about this, the places to go are the places which have tackled this, have got a grip on it and have said, right, we know we don't live in an undistorted housing market. So let's distort the Airbnb market. Let's regulate it. Let's so go mm. to a place like Amsterdam, for instance, which has a very coherent, very transparent regulations on short term lens. And they limit the amount that homeowners can let their places for. I think it's like in the order of six to two, six weeks to two months per year. That's the absolute maximum. And and rent from somebody by way of one of these sites that you feel is a reputable, you know, actor and is not trying to take you offline and off the platform and offer you the place for mm. a better deal. Go with the regulations that have been put in place, because in the vast majority of European cities, we've now seen, as it were, a wrestling match between Airbnb and the cities, which has resulted in a regulated solution. And that's clearly the direction this should go in. For many homeowners, as notably in extremely high cost settings with low incomes, it's been a lifeline. And Airbnb, I think, is not just making propaganda when it says this. And in places like Spain, for instance, where the law pertaining to private property is really punitive with regard to, for instance, if you can't pay your mortgage, you end up liable for it anyway. You can see short-term rentals as an important safety valve. This is not an apology for you know the Barcelona model of tourism, but I don't think we should exaggerate Airbnb's overall effect. So finally, I wanted to ask about uh, the geography of budget travel in Europe these days. I think the image that one still has about uh, traveling in in Europe is still of the kind of major sites of Western Europe uh, that that one has in mind, whether Paris or London or Amsterdam, uh, et cetera. But I wonder whether that ought to be transposed these days to Eastern Europe. Is that really the location of budget travel these days on the continent? And yeah, I guess more generally, where would the most undervalued place to travel be in Europe? I mean, what comes to mind for me when I was thinking about it was Albania, uh, just as a place that's outside the European Union, but sort of maybe still undiscovered, but what do you think, Adam? Yeah, a huge hierarchy here. Apparently, the, the budget you should allow for a trip to Scandinavia is as high as $150 per day. They're the most expensive. The United mm. Kingdom comes next at about $100 per day. Western Europe in the 80 to $100 per day bracket. Central Europe, 50 to 80. This is sort of, you know, backpacking news from 2023 brought to you by Cam and Adam. Um, Central Europe down in the 50 to 80 range and Eastern Europe at $50 per day, by far the cheapest. So there's a ratio of three to one between the most expensive Scandinavia and, and the cheaper Eastern European options. It does appear, you're absolutely right, that Albania is the cheapest European destination, probably the Balkans more generally, I think, uh, one Apparently, serious backpacking guide suggested budgeting about $44 a day for a trip to Albania. If you head, however, to the gorgeous Albanian Riviera, which is, you know, you know, just across the Adriatic from Italy, um, you know, down the coastline from Croatia, you're talking serious money. If you look at Airbnb for prime beachside um, on the Albanian Riviera, you're looking at between $150 and $300 per night for a villa. So what we're seeing there is real convergence um, within the within mm. the European tourist economy. But but have at it. I've, I've heard nothing but good things from friends who have been to Albania. Uh, I say it's absolutely fascinating. We should do a country spot on Albania at some point. Yeah, maybe maybe one of our maybe one of our live shows. I don't know yeah. how many listeners we have there, but uh, uh, in any case, that sounds like a pretty good lay of the land. All right. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, 
consider subscribing. Ones and Twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com, or you can email us, podcasts at foreignpolicy.com, or tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, it's Emma again. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Ones and Twos from Foreign Policy. If so, there's plenty more where that came from, and you can listen to Ones and Twos wherever you get your podcasts.